Today, my guest is my friend Hoop. Uh, you there, Hoop? Here I am. Hi, John. How you doing? Real good. Real good. How about yourself? Great. Hard not to be doing great on a beautiful day like this. Uh, oh, my God. It's so nice out. It's finally, finally, we were not cold. But I guess it's still getting into the 20s at night. But I'll take the 60s during the day, I guess. Me too. Uh, so you, you said you just got your last... Your second COVID shot, and it sounds like you're healthy. You don't sound ill, so that must have went all right for you. I am. I'm very healthy. I uh, had a major surgery a couple of years ago that slowed me down a little bit, and I bounced back from it. I'll turn 76 this summer, and I'm still working to some degree every day, and I go out and walk four or five miles almost every morning, and I, I feel really well. Um, COVID has, has not... You know, a lot of people say they're eating and drinking too much during COVID, and I, <laughs> I have avoided that. Uh-huh. And I actually, rounds. I won't say that I'm not drinking anymore, but I'm not drinking a lot more. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard, hard when you socialize when you're, you know, yep. most of our social last year has been in our garage. <laughs> Same here. So in there, there are a couple of kegs in the garage, so that yeah, it's, sort of becomes a net. Yeah, it's kind of hard not to. Right. Yeah, I was. We we had to postpone last week. Something came up. We were supposed to do this last week, and uh, you said that uh, you had to get your COVID shot. And I thought, oh boy, he's not going to be. And I had I had to postpone just so we're clear. You you didn't. And uh, everybody I know that's got like I probably four or five of my friends just became terribly ill, and it it passed in a day or so. Um, but I thought, oh geez, you're going to feel like crap. But I guess I guess not. It all worked out. Well, we got the Moderna shots, and the first one made me a little tired and a little bit achy. I didn't do a whole lot that day. I took a, a much a long nap, much longer than I normally. And then I was I was okay, but I had a, a weird reaction after for a couple of days after. Whenever I worked out, I would get overheated. I walked one morning, and it was like in the teens, and I was just burning up and soaked with sweat. And then a couple of days later, I went skiing. Same thing happened, but after that, nothing. So I had heard from somebody in the medical industry to load up on Excedrin and um, Advil after right. the shot, not before. If you do it before, it can interfere with the shot. So I took a couple of Excedrin right after the shot, and then a couple hours later, I took a couple of ibuprofen. And other than needing a little bit of a nap, I, I didn't feel anything. My wife was down for the count. Oh, yeah. On both, both days after the shot. but I, yeah, So I, I bounced back pretty quick. Well, that's good. Whatever minor inconvenience it's worth it i don't have any desire to try to test the real thing no and you guys I, you guys I, steered I, clear of it completely so i don't even know if i ever had it right we had a couple of families had it very mildly nobody nobody got very sick in our family so we were we were very lucky mm-hmm. very blessed we had it was probably back in i think december it seemed like every single person we knew um in one form or another had covid and nobody really got deathly ill or anything like that, thank God. It was, you know, mostly they were just for a day or two, they just felt really bad. And, you know, then it passed. So we were pretty lucky there. But 
Um, that was the, as close to it as we got. And who knows, we probably all had it at some point through there. Cause I mean, our, all our neighbors had it. Um, the people I work with had it. <laughs> it was just right there. So, you know, hopefully it's gone and, and, and passed us and we, we all avoided it, but. Well, as you know, I have a lot of kids, and the only ones in the family that got it were my son and his wife, who were in their 40s, and they both had it at the same time, and they basically had to lock themselves in the bedroom, so they were waited on for two weeks by their teenage daughters, mm-hmm. who would bring them with their pills and everything. They, my, my daughter-in-law said she was crying every day, literally couldn't leave the bedroom because they didn't <laughs> want the, the girls to catch it, and the girls never did catch it, strangely enough, mm-hmm. so what? the closest brush they had with it. Well, that's, that's good, then. So yeah. you, you and I met, oh my gosh, it's probably been what, four or five years ago now, many ways? Oh no, more seven or eight, I'd say. Is it? It's been a while. I can't, I was trying to think of it right before I called. And uh, I I met you through a peer group and, uh, or I guess a business peer group is what it would be in. And you led the group and uh, I always thought you had a pretty neat story of everything you've done throughout your, your career in life. And uh, I thought you'd be a great podcast guest to to share that with us. Um, All right. Not to put you on the spot, but tell us your story, Hoop. <laughs> All right. I grew up in Erie. Uh, I, I lived kind of a, a, an idyllic life. We lived two blocks from Lake Erie. So the lake was our playground. When we were kids, we literally, there was a road you could ride down to the lake and a beach. Nice. So we were down there most of the year. I, we used to get in trouble for playing on the ice dunes, which they tell everybody not to do. But all that happens is you fall through and you go into ice cold water up to about your knee or your hip and, and you go home and try to sneak in so your mom doesn't see that you're soaking <laughs> wet. Um, but we, we boated and we skied and we fished and, you know, I, I literally could any time in the summer, I could just ride my bike down and go to the beach. And, but back then, parents were a lot more, um, lenient. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could just go to the beach when we were 10 or 12 years old and we were trusted. Right. Actually, my dad. My dad got a little boat when I, I was, I think, maybe 12 or 13, and my brother was a year younger. And after we learned, or after we could prove that we could swim a couple lengths of a pool or maybe a couple hundred yards, I don't remember, they would let us take it out. And I remember my mom would drive us down to Prescott, the peninsula, and drop us off at the boat ramp. She couldn't back the boat up, so I'd back the boat on the trailer up, and we'd go in the Lake Erie Bay and go out on the lake and water ski and just goof off all day. And we most did it, whatever work we did was just went to gas for the boat. And we were out on the water at least a couple times a week. And I thought that was pretty normal. And I knew other kids that did the same thing today. Nobody would let a 12-year-old out in a boat by themselves. Right. We did it all the time. Why do you suppose that is? So, I was I was thinking about this the other day because my daughter just turned nine. And um, she she comes up the other day. It was really nice out. And she says, hey, Dad, can I ride my bike down the road? And I'm like, yeah, I just go down to the end and turn around. I mean, there's really next to no traffic or anything. And uh, I got thinking about it. And my wife's like, oh, my God, where'd Piper go? And I'm like, oh, she's riding down there by herself. And I'm like, yeah. And I got thinking about it. When I was nine, I was probably riding three times that far on my bike. I'd get on my bike and I'd ride down the road. There's a little store and we'd go down and get soda or candy or whatever. And it was just a regular thing. Like it wasn't even a big deal in the whole wide world. And somehow my daughter going almost out of eye shot is now <laughs> like a, uh, it's weird. It's, I don't even know why you even think of it like you do now. Like it's it, something terrible is going to happen. It's so strange. I think the world is a, is a lot more treacherous place. I mean, kids didn't get kidnapped and 
abused and sold into slavery. I mean, that that kind of stuff just didn't happen. You know, it wasn't in your mind. I mean, in the normal routine when we were in school in the, or out of school in the summer, you got up, had breakfast, and you went out on your bike, and you just did mm-hmm. adventures. And all day you came home for dinner, maybe. And my mom had a cowbell she used to ring, but we could go through the whole neighborhood at a really young age, which was, you know, like half a mile long and a couple blocks down the Lake Erie. And we didn't have any limits. We just went out and we always ate at somebody's house. Sometimes everybody came to our house or whoever mom, whatever the mom was at the house that we went to, we, she fed us all. And that seemed really normal. <laughs> right. Now, I do see pictures, I do see pictures of Piper driving a four by four by herself or uh, side by side. So she, she does have some leeway. Well, I, I I'm looking at a picture of her going through a big mud puddle right now with her thumbs up. <laughs> she, uh, she, so long story short, she had a little one that we got a couple years ago and, uh, it works really, really good if you wanted to just drive around in like a field or just around your yard, yeah. but she doesn't want to do that. We go riding all the time and, you know, a normal day for us is anywhere from 50 to a hundred miles. We'll go somewhere and back. And that's what she wanted to do in this little one. And the little one is great for riding around a field. Not so great if you're going to go out 50, 80 miles. And what would happen is yeah. she would ride away. It doesn't have power steering and she'd get tired. And then I'd have to drive it the rest of the way. So then I look like a gorilla driving this little bitty side by side the rest of the day. And I hated it because it rode like crap and it steered like crap. So Long story short, she can touch the pedals now in one of the bigger ones. So that was the deal. We got rid of her other one, and I, I'm probably going to be a passenger all summer. But and we put along about ten mile an hour, but it's good fun. So yeah, she had that was her first time this weekend, and she did pretty good actually. It's kind of cool. nice. So so anyway, I I grew up in a Catholic family in Erie, so um, I went to the what the uh, Mill Creek school system, and then. Which was nice. It was it was a nice way to grow up. That weren't, people weren't super wealthy. It was all middle class, or maybe a little lower class, but you know nobody paid any attention to that stuff. And then I went to prep for a couple of years, and my dad started a business when I was a sophomore in high school. So we moved from Erie to Cory, Pennsylvania, in the middle of my junior year. And I was active with the football team as a manager. I wasn't big enough to play football. I tried it once, and that didn't work out. Little guys don't play football prep. So I became a manager and really loved it. And we we had really good teams. We were city champs and all that. So I talked him into letting me stay through the end of the football season in my junior year. Then we moved to Corey. So I transferred from Cathedral Prep, which was a pretty high-performing school, to Corey High, which was a pretty rural school. So I always say that's when I stopped going to high school. I missed the last year and a half of high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing was they had girls in high school then, which I didn't understand that concept because the prep at the time was all boys. So ah. <laughs> I'd been to all male school for two and a half years. So um, I didn't get a lot of schooling done that the last year and a half of high school. I'm sure. But I I did manage to get into Notre Dame, which I was pretty proud of and happy about, although I didn't know where I wanted to go. And the guidance counselor, I was I was pretty worthless, said, why don't you look at Notre Dame? You're Catholic. So I thought, well, I'll go and look at that. So we went out and looked at it. And fortunately, I, I could test pretty well. So I did well on the college boards, and I had good recommendations. So off I go to Notre Dame. I don't know a soul in South Bend. Literally, it's, it, you know, at the time, it seemed big. It was 10,000 students, which is fairly small by standards of big schools. But um, it was it was a beautiful setting, and the people were pretty nice. It was, it was pretty 
homogenous because everybody there was kind of like me, white kids that grew up Catholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a bit of a handicap on our sports because the black kids from the South that have athletic talent aren't really about going to a place where there's a lot of snow and ice and a lot of white people and no girls. <laughs> so it was, in Notre Dame, it was all boys, so they're all men. So it was a tough sell. So, so they, this is when ath- black athletes were just starting to integrate into into the schools. And it didn't seem like a big deal to us. There's there only one other kid from Erie who went. He was a great football player. His name was Dick Arrington. He was black. And I knew him a little bit. And he's the only boy on the team, only man on the team, that played offense and defense. That was colleges were just, just switching to two-platoon football. Mm-hmm. So when the offense was off the field and the defense would come on, on both teams, he'd be the only one stand in the middle of the field. He played sixty minutes. Everybody else played thirty minutes. And he was he was an awesome awesome guy. He he did really well. So anyway, I graduated from Notre Dame in nineteen sixty seven. The good news was that we were national champs that year. Uh, we had a very good football team, which was nice. I didn't think it was probably as big a deal now then as I would now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was friends with some of the football players, not a lot of them, and. They're they're decent guys. It was, it was just nice, you know. It was pretty rah rah. Being in the middle of Indiana without much to do that that made life a little <laughs> um, bearable. But that was also the Tet uh, Offensive for Vietnam, and that's when everybody was being drafted. Mm-hmm. So now I'm not even taking job interviews. Actually, they weren't offering job interviews. We just had a chance to talk to recruiters, and I was not exactly anti-war, but I also wasn't pro-war. I wasn't anti-war enough to go to Canada. I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way. And I had a, we had a family history in the Coast Guard. I had a couple of uncles in the Coast Guard, one of whom made it up pretty high. I thought, well, what's the family in the Coast Guard? I looked at that. Now, obviously, it's a coast they're not going to. So I yeah, took the test and joined the Coast Guard and went off to officer candidate school. And um, I discovered the Coast Guard. Guarded the coast of where the rest of our troops were. So the Coast Guard had been in every war, and not only did the Coast Guard send me to Vietnam, but most of my class went to Vietnam, and the highest percent in Vietnam of any service. But the good news was, you don't get shot at much when you're sh- a couple miles out to sea. The Vietnamese didn't have any big boats, so it was it was a good experience. I actually really enjoyed Coast Guard. It was just military enough to say that you're in the service, but it was, um, it was it was. Um, probably a little more laid back than being a Marine or something like that. And it just suited me really well. I loved being at sea. So I had two and a half years of sea duty. My home port was Honolulu, which was nice. We weren't there very often, but when we were there, I lived two blocks from Waikiki Beach, which when you're 23 years old, doesn't seem so bad. So we we had a good time. We raised some hell. got to see a lot of the world. We were in places like Singapore and Hong Kong and Bangkok and Manila and in the in and out of Kuska uh, and Sasebo, Japan, and um, it was it was interesting. I I, I enjoyed it culturally. Uh, we you know we uh, were fairly innocent, um, and we didn't make a lot of money. When I when I went through training, I was making two hundred and eighty dollars a month, and then when I became an officer, I was making seven hundred dollars a month. Well, that was enough back then. The funny thing, John, was when we. We're in um, the war zone. We got $300 a month hazardous duty pay, and we're exempt from income taxes. So now we're up over $1,000 a month, and they only paid you when when you had uh, a port to go to. So if we're at sea four weeks or six weeks, 
we the night before we would make sure they would have pay call and they'd hand us this big stack of twenty dollar bills and send us ashore in some foreign port for a couple of days. And you can probably guess how well that worked out. I bet you didn't come back with much money. We know the old saying, and you know, I, I can get a little political, and we probably will later in this conversation. The Congress is always spending like a drunken sailor. <laughs> I can assure you, the drunken sailor, when we ran out of money, we went home. We didn't. There was you didn't spend money you didn't have. So I, that that old saying uh, really doesn't have have much merit because drunken sailors even knew enough to come home when they ran out of money. Our congressmen <laughs> don't have that. Stuff. They just keep going. They keep well. They, it's easy for them because they're spending our money and not their own. It's just ridiculous. I do. I don't. I can't even watch the. I, last night I came home and we were eating dinner and the news just was on. I had to turn it off. It just it, everything makes me so frustratedly angry. I just can't even. I just have to tune out. I can't. I can't watch it anymore. It's, it's yeah, really ridiculous. We'll, we'll go there in a minute. But I do say um, I was never a gung ho military guy. But I had a really good experience. I learned a tremendous amount about myself. I learned what I was good at, mm-hmm. what I liked to do, and what I didn't do. And in my case, that was managing people and managing an organization. And I had that opportunity. And um, having the regiment and just the rules he had to follow was a good thing for a young guy. And, I, you know, I met some terrific people. The Coast Guard had really good and I made great friendships. The, the captain we had on the ship was an absolute idiot. We all hate him. And he did some really dumb stuff. I won't dwell on it very much, but <laughs> I'll tell you one story. I found out after we got back that he had a lot of mental issues, and the ship's doctor was giving him uppers when we went into any stress, stressful situation. And he was giving him downers when the stress would be over. Perfect. So one morning. Do a lot of shore bombardment. We had a big gun on the boat, so we'd go into a couple miles offshore and bomb out some thatched huts or huts or herd, herd of oxen or something dumb. So one morning we're going in full speed ahead, which was like 17 knots, which isn't real fast. And I, I the captain was in his cabin, so I called down. I say, "Sir, we're we're only in uh, 30 feet of water. Request permission to slow down. No, no, no. Full speed ahead, Mr. Roach. <laughs> aye, aye, sir. So pretty soon I'd say, sir, we're, we're in 25 feet of water. We've only got eight feet below the keel. Full speed ahead. Aye, aye, sir. Finally, we got down to where we had three or four feet under the keel. We're still going to full tilt toward shore. I thought, bullshit. I'll, just, I'll get court-martialed for disobeying an order, but not for grounding the ship. So I came to full stop which was a direct violation of his orders. And we coasted to a stop in about two feet of water under the, under the keel. And I thought, holy shit, I almost grounded 255 foot ship all by myself. Um, so there were some, there were some nail splitting uh, events like that. And we did see a lot of heavy weather. Um, the Indian ocean can be pretty fickle. You get gales and uh, things like that. So we, we saw some pretty wild weather. The wildest of which was in 255 feet, a pretty small boat. Mm-hmm. We were, lost power one time and we were in a gale. So we had 40 foot seas and 60 knot winds and it was, it was pretty amazing. And we were like that for over a week. Oh my. And uh, we, we ended up taking a 55 degree roll, which means that the floor, which we would call the deck, is more level than the wall. So everything that's sitting on any flat surface gets dumped on the floor. Everything I owned that was on my desk <laughs> or my dresser or whatever in my stateroom all got dumped on the floor. 
and I had just come off watch, so I slept through it. So in the morning, everybody's saying, Roach, did you, did you see that, feel, feel that roll last night? Wasn't that amazing? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I slept through it. <laughs> you know, come up pretty tired. So anyway, I had a good experience in the coast. I, I, some, in some respects, I think people in your generation kind of get shipped because um, most, most of my generation went in the service because we had to. And for most people that came out alive, it was a pretty good experience. They learned a lot about themselves. Sure. And I've seen an awful lot of young people today that get out of high school or get out of college or whatever, and they don't know what they want to do, and they're just drifting without direction. Mm-hmm. I still coach a lot of CEOs, John, and, and one of the biggest issues they have is with the millennials really don't have a lot of drive, and, and, and they don't want to be pushed too hard, and they, they want to come and go as they please. They don't want to keep work, regular working hours. Now, I know when I was working with you, you had some of the same issues with, that worked for you. Yep. And I think it's got worse since then. I, I'm sure of it. It's it's the business owner friends that I have are having the worst time right now with, I mean, just finding people that will show up to work is almost impossible right now. Um, everybody's on unemployment The with the stimulus check stuff coming in. It, it's kind of pushing people to wait even longer. It's 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 tough to find people right now. Impossible. One of the funniest John Anderson stories I have is you'll probably remember one time I attended this exercise we called The Missing Man. And my theory was everybody has somebody at work that they would like to perform a little better. Their body is there, but they're really not there mentally. So they're missing while they're in, in their desk. And everybody had to write it up and what was their action plan and how are they going to coach this person to become a better performer and get them to be part of the team. And I was explaining it to you and you kind of had a blank look on your face. Like you finally said to me, I don't think I understand. I said, what's not to understand? Is it whoever, whoever you have that isn't performing? And you said, well, that's easy. If they're not doing what I want them to do, I just fire them. So I don't have anybody like that. <laughs> right. You remember that? Yes. <clears throat> no, we always, if, you know, I was pretty fortunate in that I usually um, was able to find relatively good people. And uh, I didn't have to do a lot with them. You know, I, I was lucky in that I found quality people and, and let them go. And if I happened to make a miscalculation in, in hiring... I didn't draw it out very long and try and figure out the secret sauce to get him to work. I, I figured there was another person coming down the road that would be better. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was time to move on. I don't, I don't know if you can do that today, but it worked 10 years ago. It's pretty hard. It really is hard. So what's the most employees you ever got up to? We were hovering 21 or something like that at one point. So that was the kind of the peak. And then, uh, we settled down into 10 for the longest time. And then I, I pretty much had a gut full of it all. And I just have one now and it's, it's bliss. Well, I'm sure you were not happy when you were at 21. Not even, I don't think that's you. Not even a little. And, and I, I went the other way. I, I like to be big. My growth was always growth. And after I got out of the service, I uh, married my college sweetheart. And we moved to Washington, D.C., where I went to grad school for a couple of years. And at that time, my dad had started a business uh, when I was in high school. And it had, it was grown pretty nicely. It had, it had a couple hundred employees. It was about $8 million in sales. And he came to see me and said, I need you to come back. Because I had always wanted to go to work for the family company. That's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And that said, I need you right now. Because I have somebody that's in inside sales. They're going out on the road. And I need you to come in and take that job. 
I said, no, I, I really think I, what they call the five-year rule, if you're in a family business, you should work for somebody else for five years and then go back. He said, well, that, that's nice, but I may not have a job for you in five years. I need you now. And then I had a meeting with my wife who said, let me explain it to you this way. I've got one move in me. I'm not going to be one of those people that moves around all the time. Mm-hmm. Wherever we it's that's where it's going to be. So she said, if you want to take that job in Cory, Pennsylvania, either you take it now or we're not going there. So I went back to Cory and got involved in the family business just in time for a nasty recession, which would have been about 1973-ish. And our workforce shrunk by about 50%. Hmm. Pretty quickly. And I went to my dad and his partner. I said, you, you got to lay me off. And they said, no, we can't. We need you. I said, well, you can't lay off all these other people and pass the sun around. They said, well, we can and we will. We're just, we need you and you, there's a lot of work for you to do. So I never did get laid off, although I thought I should have. And um, my dad was a really smart businessman. He was the outside guy that got the administration and the office. And his partner was a mechanical guy, so he ran the factory. So they had a pretty good thing going, although I ended up with later on with a lot of problems with it, his partner just because of his personality, but they managed to stay out of each other's hair most of the time. And I, I gradually worked my way up through sales and into operations. And I kind of had my fingers in most parts of the operation after a couple of years. And my dad was, uh, was 30 years older than I, so he wanted to retire. He did some, what he called semi-retire. So I was taking things over and knocking heads with his partner more and more often. I, we have very antiquated, um, personnel priorities and how we treated our customers. I mean, I can never forget the first couple of times I went to his, my, my dad's partner who ran the factory said, yeah, customers in a pinch that we need a shipment right away. And he'd say, go F, tell them to go F themselves. <laughs> so I thought that's what I do. And after I tried that a few times, I found out that really wasn't an effective communication right. with customers. That's not so the best I way. Always, whatever he told me to do, I always did the opposite. And that worked out really well. He just, he, he was not a, a nice guy. I found out later he was a closet alcoholic and he just didn't like people. And, um, he sort of did us all a favor and died in 1981. I was 36 and all of a sudden my dad had already retired and uh, the board said, well, you should run the company. And I said, I don't know that I, I always wanted to, but I'm kind of young. I'm kind of young. It's kind of early. And they said, mm-hmm. well, you're going to run it. So take you might get used to it. You're, you're the president now. I got kind of a battlefield for me. And it was it was a really good thing. My, my brothers had joined the business. Then I had two brothers. And they had joined the business. And we had the rare opportunity that not, most people don't get to put into effect all of the ideas that we ever had so we could change the factory and the customers and the marketing and the employment practices and the labor. Anything that could be changed, we changed it all at the same time. And it was pretty instructive because we find out we found out that you can change too much, and it kind of tends to blow up on you. Mm-hmm. So we created a, a major mess. We just were trying to change everything at the same time, and it was very disruptive. We lived through it, but it was a close call. Uh, but we did modernize the factory, and uh, we had we had you know toy manufacturer plastic manufacturers back then kind of did everything for everybody. So we tried a little bit of automotive. A little bit of toys, a little bit of housewares, a little bit of furniture, a little bit of electronics, a little bit of automotive. And we didn't really focus on anything. 
And my brothers and I came to the conclusion that we needed to get really good at something. Mm-hmm. And since we'd had a couple of toy companies that went bankrupt on us, we knew we wanted a customer that was pretty stable, non-seasonal, non-cyclical, and used a lot of whatever it was that they used. And we came to the conclusion that was the consumer products industry. And we made packaging for them. So we made things like lids and closures and dispensers and vials and that sort of thing. And so we really focused on people like Procter and Gamble and Gillette and Perrier and we started to grow really rapidly. Uh, we we actually grew so rapidly that we, from a fairly high base, by then we were, sales were in the teens, we doubled, we, we added 50% to our sales two years in a row. So basically we doubled the company in two years. Wow. And we found out you can try to grow too much. Right. And what, hap- what happens is, and this is something I've never forgotten, we, out, we didn't outgrow the facility so much. We outgrew a lot of our mid-level managers basically what you would call division heads, who we found out were doing everything themselves. They didn't really delegate. And they just reached the point where they blew up and they couldn't, they just couldn't physically or mentally do everything that needed. They couldn't delegate. So some people can't, I learned at that point that some people just can't with you. And some are more than happy to take a demotion and go do something for the good of the company. Others have to go work somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that was, I've never been good at firing but as you know john it's sort of a necessary evil everybody isn't always the right person for the organization time right and you have to recognize quickly or they can really bring things so anyway we we kind of had some growth teams but we were growing nicely and we really we really focused on high volume production and um a couple of things happened one my brothers and i had sort of a disagreement about the direction for the company. They wanted to grow more slowly and be able to harvest more uh, of the earnings. And I wanted to grow quickly and become a major player in our industry. And neither of us was right or wrong. It was just the, the difference in philosophy. And I ended up buying them both out in 1991. We we're each one third owners. So when one third ownership of a company buys out two thirds, it's financially very difficult to do. Sure. Uh, so I ended up borrowing too much money. And we always were kind of uh, heavily in debt from that point on. Because not only had I bought them out, which was a lot of capital, but we started to, after we kind of got our direction straightened out, we started to move even more rapidly. I think our sales when, we, when I bought them out were about $24 million. That was 91 And by the, the mid-2000s, like two thousand. 2008, we were about 100 in revenue. And we were really cooking along pretty good. And you know, it was fun. I mean, I, I really enjoyed growing an organization. Um, somewhere along in there, you know, I have five kids. After we have one, my wife, who you've met, um, she can be pretty direct. <laughs> trying to be polite about it. There's other words I would use, but... She said, you know, we need to have a conversation. I said, that doesn't sound good. She said, yeah, you always said you want to have a lot of kids. I said, yeah, I, I thought you did too. And she said, well, I do. But, you know, I don't plan to raise them all by myself. So you got to make a choice whether you want to be a father or an entrepreneur. But what you're doing right now isn't working because we don't see enough of you. So that was the point where I decided to go to work early and come home early. Mm-hmm. And then if I had more work to do, I would do it after the kids went to bed at night. So I was always home pretty much five o'clock-ish. 
And a lot of times I'd go back to work at nine o'clock at night. And as you know, when everybody else gets out, then you can really get some stuff done. Right. I'd go in a couple hours at night. And fortunately, I only lived a couple of miles from the factory. So um, that worked out really well for us. And I was very active in raising our kids. And we did end up being fortunate enough to have five kids. And um, they were, they they grew up fine and came out well. And they're, uh, they're all in our area. We've got two of them in Erie, one in Finley Lake, and two in Corey. So they're all around here. Most of them are married, and we've got four grandchildren. So uh, it, it seemed like it all worked out well. But um, we we learned a long time ago that we don't argue with Mama. It just doesn't mm. have a does, doesn't have a high dividend rate. I have a feeling your wife doesn't take a lot of crap either. That was the impression I always got. I love your wife. <clears throat> she makes me laugh. But I also got this feeling like, nope, she's not messing around. She's she's pretty serious when she's serious. Yeah, uh, when she when she gets that look in her face, nobody 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 even bothers argues like hey, whatever Marnie wants to do, that's what we're gonna do. So, yeah. for, uh, um, so anyway, uh, it it was all cooking along pretty good. We're growing fast, and um, the, the amount of debt that we had piled up was starting to become a worry. And um, that woman we were just talking about didn't like the amount of stress that we were putting ourselves, the amount of risk we were taking. Because as you get bigger, then the amount of the borrow gets bigger. Mm-hmm. And by then, I was doing all my banking with J.P. Morgan Chase Bank in New York City and in Cleveland. And so along comes 2008. And in 2008, as you, I'm sure you remember, we had the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. And early in that year, when things when the shit was really starting to hit the fan, um, my biggest customer, which is Procter & Gamble, they're 50% of our sales, said they wanted to have a, a meeting. We had been trying to, we'd work, we had worked with them on five-year contracts for years, and they were talking about shortening them to three years, but we never got that negotiation completed. And then all of a sudden, they wouldn't talk about it. So they called me into a meeting and said, we've decided we're taking our business up, and you've got six months, and we're going to be gone. Now, replacing $50 million worth of business in a severe recession uh, isn't, isn't a very easy thing to do. They didn't really give us enough warning. They didn't give us enough time. So they just pulled out and left us high and dry. But on the other hand, we had $50 million remaining, which was enough. And we, we still had good cash flow, but the bank panicked and liquidated us. And um, if you've never dealt with a really big bank, they can be kind of a mindless creature that they just do things that they think are right without ever really kind of evaluating the overall situation. And, um, you know, my wife says that I'm supposed to write a book about all this. And it was a very hard time in, in my life because I thought we had been doing all the right things. We treated our employees well. We treated our customers well. We had a great reputation for integrity in the industry and high quality. And we were kind of hitting on all cylinders. They, they pulled the rug out from under mm-hmm. us. And long to our short, they forced a liquidation. So I went through a bankruptcy in November of 2008. And all of a sudden, I'm 62 years old and unemployed, and I don't have a company anymore. And I'm not anywhere near as wealthy as I thought I was. Mm. That was sort of the start position of my life. And that's why I became a consultant and a CEO coach. And that's, that's when I started doing that uh, CEO coaching for Vistage. Is when I met you and a lot of people like. You. Mm-hmm. So that's that's been my life for the last twelve years, and I would say I'm sort of quasi-retired. I don't have to be anywhere at seven o'clock in the morning except out on the 
road walking, which I usually get my walks in the morning. I walk four or five miles most mornings. And um, life has actually been pretty good. We, you know, we aren't able to do the things that we used to do. Um, can't buy Corvettes when I want to, and I can't uh, take as many trips as I want to. But other than that material stuff, you know, we're, we're still really fortunate. The kids are all good. Mm-hmm. Everybody's healthy. Marty has good health. I have good health. So I'm planning to be, be around here for a long time. Um, and, but, but I do worry, uh, and you've got, you sort of alluded to this earlier. The country is going in a really stupid direction mm-hmm. that, you know, it, I think both parties are, are a problem. Mm-hmm. I'm a lifelong Republican, but I'm not thrilled with what they're doing. I'm sickened by what the Democrats are doing. They had a, they have a, a wish they put together over the last 50 years and they decided to do it all this year. And it reminds me in a, in a serious way of what my brothers and I tried doing, mm-hmm. where we wanted to change everything in the company at the same time because it was, we felt that we had so much pent up and it blew up in our faces. We had, it took us a while to get it settled back down. Mm-hmm. All the stuff the Democrats are doing is going to blow up in their faces. I think it already is. The immigration thing is, is a, it's just a travesty. And what's going on with the blacks and in the big cities is, um, very disturbing. And I think there's overall just a lack of respect for law and order and for civilization. And people just expect stuff to be given to them. So it's like that, what you're talking about, the attitude of the typical employee. They just want to come to work and not be pushed too hard. And if they don't feel like working at eight o'clock that day, maybe come in at one o'clock or maybe not come in that day at all and still get paid. Um, it just boggles my mind that we pay people so much money to not work. Um, I have 10 active coaching clients right now. All of them are looking for employees and all of them are finding they can't find employees, especially skilled. Mm-hmm. And it's situation is getting readily worse. And we're, wringing our hands over this terrible unemployment problem. Unemployment problem is caused by the government. Right. Uh, we've encouraged all these kids to go to college. And I went to college, um, and I'm happy that I did. But I know an awful lot of people that never should have gone to college mm-hmm. and went to college and got a degree in psychology or marine biology or something where there's no jobs. And I always like to tell the story. of uh, My youngest daughter's name is Maggie. She has a really good friend. He's a neat guy. He's an iron worker. And um, he's actually pretty intellectual. He lives out in the country. He's a he's a big uh, farm. Uh, I mean, he doesn't farm because he's an iron worker, but he has a, con- a country place with a barn and everything. And he likes his toys just like you do, John. But he doesn't own a TV. He likes to read a lot of business per- periodicals. And whenever I see him, all he wants to talk about is the business situation and the economy. And one of the things that distresses him most is as an iron worker, he makes $55 an hour. He has pretty much unlimited overtime. He goes to work early and comes home in the middle of the afternoon with no stress, doesn't have to worry about anything. He knows there's more work than they can handle. Mm-hmm. And they can't get anybody to go in the apprentice program for that. It's crazy. Uh, can you imagine? People won't even think about taking a job that's ultimately going to pay $55 an hour. This guy is in his early 30s. Mm-hmm. And he's actually quite, he has the lifestyle he wants to live and doesn't, doesn't really have a lot of the stress that most people have, and they right. can't get anybody into that job. It's, What's wrong with that picture? It's astounding. And my wife and I were just talking about this last night. We were kind of uh, talking, and the the amount of people that go to college that should not is staggering. And uh, of all the people I know, I'm going to say out of every hundred, there's probably ten 
that should have probably went to college. And the rest of the people could have were more than capable of doing the job that they're doing today just by going and doing the job and learning on the job and, and becoming better at it. Um, it just seems like such a tremendous burden we put on people and kind of put the stress on them that they have to do it and they should do it. And if they don't, everybody kind of looks down upon them. Um, and it, it, it boggles my brain when there's so many trades out there, like you were just saying that if they went and learned that trade, they can learn it for free and make way more money than if they went to college for four years or six years and, uh, ended up in one of these other jobs that usually are capped somewhere and they're, 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 there's nowhere to go. That's just what it is. You know, I, I, I it, fr that whole situation frustrates me beyond belief. I don't understand it. Well, you and I both live in small mm -hmm. towns, and there's an amazing number of people in Cory who have a trade, you know, a plumber, a carpenter, mm -hmm. a machinist, and they make a decent living, and they don't have a lot of stress and anxiety. Most people, you know, in management and companies are stressed out, yeah. um, don't enjoy the job. And these people are helping, helping people build houses or helping them repair the houses they have, and they're doing, doing productive stuff. They're always busy, always work to do. And they're really happy. And, you know, I, in part of my consulting work, we do some stakeholder interviews for government, uh, for like industrial development and redevelopment authorities. And the stakeholder interviews, when I talk to employers, it's always the same complaint. Where are the skilled workers? Why isn't it, why isn't there publicity? What these jobs pay, what the benefits are. And it, it just, it, it boggles my mind too. I, I, I can't find a reason for it other than there's this massive prejudice among families that their kids have to go to college and they don't and the military is actually option too some people come out of, come out of the military with damn good careers yep then somebody else pays for it they don't have to pay yeah 50 or 80 dollars a year to go to college well i think you have a i was gonna say that i think there's two dynamics there so the first is you pressure kids to go to school and they get out of college and they're pressured to go or i'm sorry high school and they're pressured to go somewhere and so you have to pick before you even know shit about Shinola. Like you don't know what you like or want to do. And I, you know, I've gotten fortunate enough to do a bunch of different jobs. And there's some that if I went to school for that and I'd paid twenty, thirty, hundred thousand dollars for my education, and I was pressured by my parents who also probably paid for some of it and then would say, Hey, you know, you went to school for A, why are you doing B job that doesn't pay as much? So you you force people to make a decision and then you force them to do the job that they end up not liking <laughs> and then they're miserable till they quit and go do something else that it just seems like the most broken system in the whole wide world and i i just i like i said it i i it, the whole thing frustrates me i just i just don't get it just don't get it at yep. all the people that run all the systems they're not doing anything to fix it no the, the other thing i wanted to talk that is, um, that's really distressing me is I see more and more anti-capitalism, anti-big business mm -hmm. stuff in the news all the time. And to be honest, my business touched a hundred million dollars at one time. I thought that was middle side. And that is, that is not a big business. Mm -hmm. When the economy went bad in the great recession of 2008, the airlines were too big to fail and the auto companies were too big to fail. The banks were too big to fail. My company wasn't too big to fail. I needed some help, and there was not a lifeline anywhere. Um, there was one organization getting $15,000 to see if I could help train some people to do things that would get us out of the mess. You know, we needed we needed somebody to come in and 
get the bank off my back. And the system was just happy to let me go bankrupt. And all those, at the time, we probably had five or 600 employees. They all just um, had to figure out something else to do, which is <laughs> dump that many employees into a small town. It's pretty hard right. for them to find jobs. If, if and I that that still still sticks in my throat a little bit to this day. We should not have lost the company. Um, and to this day, if there's something else I could have done, I would have tried it. I don't know what I should have done differently. My wife says I'm supposed to write a book about it. I, I, I'm giving it some serious thought, but um, the so, the end result is as we learn about many things in life, it just isn't fair. That's that's the bottom line. It just isn't fair. But so, many of the entrepreneurs that I know, you know, we're, they're sort of portrayed as being these greedy capitalists that are trying to see what they can do to make sure their employees are downtrodden and that they mm-hmm. they take all these profits and just hoard away millions of dollars and have jets and retreats and beach beach homes and all that. I know a lot of entrepreneurs. And I coach a lot of them. None of them are like that. The biggest problem is they don't have a good work-life balance because they're so obsessed about their business that they're working 40, 60, 70 hours a week on it. But when they're at home, they're, they can't get it out of their mind. Mm-hmm. And one of my jobs is to help people try to figure out how to, how to have a better work-life balance. Entrepreneurs are wired differently. Um, and that's why they make billions of dollars because most people won't work that hard and don't have the drive and the um, the passion for the idea and just the intellectual curiosity, you know, to to do sure. what they do. There there aren't very many guys like the what's his name at Tesla, right? Um, Elon Musk. That people are not wired, and the reason that the board, the boards, and the shareholders pay them millions and billions of dollars is because not many people can do that. No, and everybody sort of in that amount of money. Nobody wants to work that hard. I I I made a choice when I early in my career. I wasn't going to work that hard. I worked hard. And I did. I think I did all the right things, and we grew the company. But I didn't need to be a ten million dollar, ten billion dollar company. I didn't need hundred million dollars. Sure. And but they drive the economy. That, that's the point I'm trying to get to. We're not only attacking big businesses; we're attacking medium and small. What they're doing to the entrepreneurs and the you know the small businesses, the restaurants and the saloons and the, the tourist industries and Car dealers, all, all you know, these are these are fairly small businesses. They owners make a living, but they're not multimillionaires. Right. And all being attacked. If you own a, it's almost like if you own a business anymore, you're supposed to be ashamed of it. And mm-hmm. I was, I, I think that people that own businesses should be proud, are proud, and they're driving the economy. And if we start driving those people out or making it harder and harder for them, some of them will just say screw it and right. and just close down or go to another country. If they go to another country, we've lost. That's that's going to be a net loss for the country, and that's you know that worries me. And what, that the uh, God, the, the media just hates yeah. business, hates business. One of the things that I see is kind of a that I see the other side a little bit, <clears throat> and one of the things that frustrates me is this relentless idea that a business has to make a certain percentage more every single year. Now, I realize there's some inflationary things that, you know, obviously you can't make the exact same amount of money every year and and sustain. But this idea that no matter what we need to make, we got to figure out a way to, you know, make a 20% increase every single year, no matter what. And I, I get when you're first growing a company and you're getting it up to a certain size, you know, you have those big growths. 
But at some point, it seems like it's to me uh, and all the things that I've seen through business is once you get it to a certain size, let's just have a good company. <laughs> we don't need to keep growing and growing and growing. And, I, and I'm, I, I'm sure there's different philosophies, but that's one of the things that I see in these great big businesses that <clears throat> no matter what, at all costs, we have to grow because, you know, we have to return shareholder value and all that kind of stuff. And they're acquiring and shutting down factories and businesses and doing all this, all this big stuff that I think a lot of people look at and go, that's kind of gross. You know, you just bought a factory and you're shutting it down and you're doing this or you're laying off people and, and all that kind of stuff that they see all the time. And they lump everybody in that same basket. Um, you know, your local grocer mechanic or florist or whatever, who's just happy with the business they get. And if they can add a couple things every year and just have a nice business, they're happy. But somehow those people get lumped in with that same, uh, I don't even know what to, what to say that, that people despise that growth at all costs sort of thing. And, uh, I don't, I don't, the amount of big businesses are actually kind of small. There's not that many. There's really not. I mean, a right. couple, couple hundred, maybe. I don't know. Maybe three, four hundred. Well, it's kind of considered either the Fortune 500 or the Fortune 1000 to be big business. But, you know, most of the people I knew that had businesses uh, were five million or 10 million or 50 million. Um, and I've known a couple of people that have had billion dollar businesses. They're different cats. They're, they're not mm -hmm. necessarily a lot of fun to be around. But, you know, the other thing. Ironic is they don't sit around bitching about their taxes. Mm -hmm. People seem to have this impression once you get to a certain level, you spend all your life plotting how to not pay taxes. You don't care. Most of them are happy. They're making money. It's like fine. I, I can guarantee you that Elon Musk isn't sitting around worrying about how mm -hmm. much taxes he's going to pay. He's, he's worrying about his business being successful and what he can invent next. And that's what drives him. Um, I, I sort of, I think I'd probably disagree with you a little bit on that because I always felt like either you were growing or you're shrinking. Um, it's, it, it's kind of hard to have that balancing act where you stay at the same place. Mm -hmm. And it, it probably depends on what kind of product. In, in my industry, um, which was packaging for people like Procter and Gamble and uh, Gillette and so forth, as I said, Kimberly Clark, it's, um, very difficult to survive if you don't grow because the customers take so much money away from you every year. They expect you to reduce your prices every year. And it, it sort of becomes, uh, you're, you're chasing your tail. If you don't grow, you work your risk going out of business. So you have to keep growing and it, it can become uh, a pretty brutal thing. But I, I mean, I think there's a lot of businesses like sustaining businesses like car dealerships or restaurant chains that can achieve a lot and just get really good at what they do and don't have to grow. So, I mean, I, I think I agree with you, but it is, it depends on what, what kind of industry you're in. Um, yeah, it's definitely all different. It's so difficult, no matter what it is anymore. I think the whole system is kind of rigged, especially the government to make it harder every year. Now that now, I mean, I can guarantee you there's massive tax increases coming and we're going to lose some businesses. No doubt. Some will go out of business. Some will just go to other countries, and that's mm -hmm. that's a crime. I hate to see that. You know, I, I've always loved business. I really enjoy business. I enjoy the give and take. I enjoy the colleagues I met. I enjoy people working with people like you that are driving their business. And it just really worries me the direction that this country is going and what we're doing to the businesses. It's kind of like people are so worried about 
the individual people and the individual rights and the minorities. And we're so worried about stepping on anybody's toes that everybody's forgetting where the money comes from. Government mm-hmm. doesn't create money. I've read for years, government doesn't create anything but taxes. What really creates money is basic industry, mining and manufacturing and farming that create a product. And they, they take, they make something out of nothing and actually they create wealth. Right. And you have to get out of their way and let them do it. And it's, it's, quite, it's kind of like making sausage. It could be a messy product, product, uh, process, I mean. And, you know, you don't always want to talk about all the things you have to do to be successful. It's, it's, it can be very brutal and mm-hmm. you make a lot of mistakes. You go back and redo it. You know, you learn from the mistake and you go back and redo it. Mm-hmm. And it's, 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 it's high stress. So I was going to, we need, was... need to worry about the people that are doing that because they're producing the income that's driving this country. Sure. And I, I really learned what, what I think, John, is that we're going to be the next year. If Europe was doing all this stuff, 20, 30, 50 years ago that we're doing now in Europe is, is really declining pretty rapidly. And we're, I think we're following down the same path and China and Russia are starting to eat our lunch. And that's not a good thing. No, I, I kind of feel like my, my view on our, our state as a country, I guess, is I have this feeling we're on the verge of a big swing back the other way. I, I just... I feel like it's a very small minority that is being really loud and getting all the attention. But I, I just, especially in the past year and in, you know, we can, you can lump everything into whatever basket you want as far as people and the COVID stuff and the shutdowns and the angst that all that caused. But I feel like people are really starting to become fed up. And I feel like there's more fed up people that are just normal, honest, decent, hardworking people who I'm I'm hoping are going to step up and start getting more active in their, in their local, you know, whether it's politics or or businesses or whatever. Because I think we rode a wave of this kind of thing, especially when I was growing up, that eh, politicians, eh, they don't really make a difference. It's just, they're going to do whatever they do. And and the past few years, we've seen, you know, you can start at Trump all the way up to where we are right now. Oh, yeah, there's a huge difference in in who and what stands up and what they stand up for. And I'm really hopeful that people are going to sit back and go, oh, no, we can't let this sort of stuff happen again. We need to stand up and hopefully in the next couple of election cycles, some quality people stand up because, you know, that's what we need. We need some better leaders in the country period it just seems most of the people are the shystery sort of grossness that's been there forever and i'm really hoping we start rooting that out but we'll see i guess well you know i i am the eternal optimist marty gets mad at me because she says i'm too optimistic so i've always been like you and believe the same thing but i will say there's a difference this time because the democrats i hate to be political but i'm going to go political they're spending so much of their time trying to create new voters. They want to add Puerto Rico and D.C. as states. That'll give them four senators. And they're creating so many entitlement programs and paying people so much money to not work that it's going to be awfully hard for someone who's not a wealthy person to vote for Republicans who are going to take some of that stuff away. Sure. I mean, I don't think the Republicans have been very fiscally responsible either, but I don't think we've ever seen maybe since the Great Depression 
the kind of money being thrown around by the government that is being thrown around now. And these big entitlement programs that have billions and trillions of dollars, they're kind of like a Trojan horse. They're carrying with it a lot of the liberal stuff that they want. And all that liberal stuff helps them get more voters, even the immigrant thing. They want they've got they want illegal aliens to vote. They want them to get benefits, health benefits, and stuff that are paid for with our taxes. And I, I don't want to be Scrooge, you know, Scrooge. But you know, if you want to get all those benefits, become a citizen and pay taxes like the rest of us. Well, it's um, it's fundamentally or we this... give away money. The harder it's going to be for people to vote against us because we're making people just believe they don't have to work. Right. We, you know, my you know, two of my daughters teach. And I don't know about Bradford, but in Corey, we're now 100% free breakfast and lunch, not assisted, 100% free breakfast and lunch. When the kids go to school, they get breakfast, mm-hmm. noon they get lunch. When they go home, sometimes they get food at night. They get they get backpacks for the weekend so they can eat in the weekend. We have we have trained the parents to think they don't need to feed the kids anymore because it, it's the school's job and the government's job to feed their kids. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Now, I don't remember anybody giving me a free lunch when I was in, kinder or in grade school or anything. I wouldn't want it. I would have wanted it. I didn't like the school lunches that well. Well, anyway, and we all took our lunch. Sure. But the point is, if you get enough people addicted to the government support, they're going to keep voting for the people to keep that support coming to them so they don't have to work. There are people that don't like to work. Um, guys <laughs> like you and me like to work. Sure. And most everybody I know likes to work, but a lot of people that we're creating that would rather not work as long as the government pays them to sit home, they're going to do that. And right. I, I think that a lot, a lot of this stuff going on that seems kind of wacky, it's really created to provide more votes for the people who idle us so they can stay in power. It's, it's all about power. It's about a power grab. So, I don't, I, do just, you think we just have too many people? Like at some point, okay. you, you have a I system. I said a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> started reading Drug for the third time. It's it's a it's a it's a good reminder to read Atlas Shrugged and uh, Fountainhead every once in a while because mm-hmm. a lot of what that book predicted what eighty years ago it's happening now. Yeah, yep. Well, at some point, you know, we just had. I mean, even if you go back in the eighties, there was a hundred and some million people, hundred and fifty or whatever it was, and now we're at three hundred and thirty million people. That's a lot more people. So if you know thirty forty years ago. You had a, a 20% of people or 10% or whatever the percentage of people who are quote unquote unproductive. Now we've at least doubled it at the very least. That's a lot more people. <laughs> you, you, you've right. made the problem bigger. You know what I mean? So I, I just yeah. sometimes think we just have too many people. Well, think about if you're a, what my one of my daughters teaches kindergarten, the other teaches second grade. So you're in those grades. You go to school and you get breakfast, lunch. They give you at noon. They give you lunch. You go home at night. They might not give you much food, and you see your parents not working. They're just watching TV and playing video games and mm-hmm. smoking meth and all that. And then on the weekend, they give you a backpack full of food. It doesn't occur to you that maybe that you have to work when I mean, you don't have. Maybe you don't have as nice a car and as nice a TV as everybody, but everybody else is kind of the same way that you hang out with. And you think, well, I guess that's the way life is. So mm-hmm. I don't really need to go to trade school or anything. I just wait for the welfare check to come around and whatever, whatever the next program is. Yeah, that, that's that's the stuff that really worries me. Yeah, I don't know what you're um, you know. Um, I don't, I'm just wondering if we can ever get a, uh, somebody 
elected that's responsible for our money, Democrat or Republican. I'm, I'm not wild about what the Republicans did with our money for the last four years either. Do you do you think that they really have the power to make that change, though, like no matter who's elected? Like, I mean, it just seems like you're against the giant machine that's already in place. It certainly seems to me they're trying to create votes so they can stay in office forever. Mm-hmm. Long period. I mean, I, I would like to think that people will just not like what's going on. You know, here's another irony. Trump, for all his faults, and I, I hated Trump. I thought he was just a, a consummate jerk. But he was actually trying to get us out of war. So he was bringing the truth home. Mm-hmm. He was saying, BS on us, sending all the money to all these foreign countries and all these wars we don't need to be in. He hated the foreign aid. Why are we sending billions of dollars to all these other countries when people are people are uh, starving here and need jobs here? You know, you know. After what I said, there are still people that would like to have jobs that probably don't have the education or whatever to get a job. Yet we're st- sending all the money overseas that could be used to create employment here. Right. But a lot of that stuff just doesn't make sense anymore. Maybe it made sense 50 years ago. And did, did you ever read about the military bases? Mm-hmm. This is probably every bit as much a Republican problem as Democrat. We have hundreds of military bases that we don't need anymore. The, the waging of war has become very high tech. You, you know more about this stuff than I do, John. We don't need all these millions of troops. We really don't. It's it's all going to be fought technologically, cyber wars and with drones and right. unmanned air unmanned stuff. And there's not going to be a lot of ground troops anymore. Um, yet we keep pouring money into it, and we nobody wants to close the base, so they keep bases open for political reasons, not because they're right. strategic. I was just going to say, there's just hun- business- hundreds of bases and hundreds of thousands of people that we don't need to be paying for. Yeah, it's insane. That that kind of stuff is crazy. It really yeah. does. Doesn't make any sense. So it all creates both. I was going to ask you earlier, and you you're, you sort of already said it, but uh, I'll ask anyways. So. If you could go back, let's just say the day that the board says, who take over this company and give yourself some advice or, or just a note, on, open it on this day and do this instead of that. Um, do you have any of those sort of things that you would go back and, and change or give yourself a piece of advice that, you know, would, would make life different for you in the future? Oh, absolutely. I, I have a lot of those. How much time do we have left, John? As much as you want. I have to go to an hour or so. Um, probably the most important one, and, and I knew this and I did it anyway, is not to let yourself get too concentrated with one customer. Mm-hmm. When you go with Fortune, five, Fortune 50 companies, which is what Procter & Gamble was, if you let them get too big, they will absolutely dominate you and they'll tell you what you can charge, what, what kind of products you have to develop. They will tell you everything about how you have to operate. And they own you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're in, in business, you deal with salespeople. And if they don't sell anything, you don't have a business. Right. But we're in a position where we're getting, we're, we became Procter & Gamble's biggest supplier of thin-walled packaging. Lids and, and closures and tampons and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And we reached the point where I would say to the sales guys, we have too much Procter & Gamble business. They got to be 25 or 30%. I'd say, we need to diversify. We can't let them own us. And they'd say, well, that's great, but they want to give us $10 million worth of Folgers. Can't we just <laughs> right. wait until we take this project in? And then they want $5 million worth of Pringles or $8 million worth of Tampax. 
And there's there was a point in time there when I should have said absolutely not. Either was just say no, or we'll only take fifty percent of it. We always outperformed our competitors, but when there was there was when we didn't have any competitors, we were sole source and all that stuff. They had no basis of comparison, so they didn't know whether we were any good or not. They just knew that there was always somebody out there willing to sell it cheaper. Mm-hmm. So that that's one thing I absolutely um, would not ever let a customer do anything like that again. Probably the next thing would be uh, you have to use debt judiciously and being a, being a growth junkie which I was I was a growth junkie my friends always called me a growth junkie I thought we needed to get big to survive in our markets and there was some truth to that but we borrowed too much money and then when the stuff hit the fan um, then the bank the bank panicked as I said mm-hmm. and the bank did some dumb things and forced us into a bankruptcy had we been more cautious about debt we wouldn't have grown as fast but we might have stayed in business. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the two biggest things. Um, pretty much everybody I know in business, except for maybe John Anderson, keeps people around too long before they let them go. <laughs> there are some people that that don't belong in organizations. And whenever we did release people, and we, we certainly fired our share of people, then everybody would say, well, we wondered why they kept her around so long. You know, she wasn't pulling her weight or she was, right. she was negative and she was... It wasn't contributing. So I think you have to be slow to hire and quick to fire. Um, And I I, I think diversification of not only customers, but of markets, we we tried our best to do that, but we got pretty specialized in what we did. So I I think those are the high points. Um, The things that I think we did particularly well, we really looked for good people. And when we needed somebody to to be a a department head or, uh, with a special skill, we would take on a piece of business maybe that we weren't qualified for, and then we'd get a recruiter to go out there and find somebody that understood that technology really well and was a good teacher. Mm-hmm. And we did that repeat, and that really worked out well for us. They, you're not only going to come in and do this for us, but you're going to teach the people around you to do it too, so that we'll have that that knowledge uh, will be spread throughout the company, not just in one person. Sure. Because those really smart people. They don't want to stick around forever. They're going to go on. But we wanted them to leave the knowledge behind. Um, and and uh, I guess those are the high points. Uh, the other thing I'd say, if, if you can, um, avoid partnerships. <laughs> I would say partnerships don't work because the partner is a bad person. It's just because they have a different philosophy. Right. You know, they... One person wants to grow, another person wants to harvest, one person wants to be in the automotive industry, another person wants to be in consumer packaging, maybe another one wants to be in um, household products. Sure. You, you, you have to all be heading in the same direction. And my brothers were good people, and they were really good at what they did. They didn't happen to want to go in the same direction I wanted to go in. Um, so you know, it, Everybody has to be pulling in the same direction, you know, and... They need to really understand what the strategy is, mm-hmm. and the people that are working there have to buy onto that strategy, or they need to go work somewhere else. Sure. And that, that's what happened. With uh, I'm particularly proud of the way we treated people. We were always very uh, careful to take good care of our employees, uh, and I think they really took good care of the company. I, I really can't complain about that. We did have a union the whole time I was in business. Which, if I had my druthers, I I would rather not have a union. But um, 
I always tell people, you know, a union can't tell you what to do. It's a bargaining process. And if you don't want to do what the union wants to do, then you don't do it. And, you know, sometimes right. after we, we took one strike, which was painful, but it was a good decision because the union had gotten out of control and the wages were very uncompetitive. So either we had to correct that or go out of business. And I got to be, I got to be pretty good friends with a lot of the union people. And, um, most plastic companies will tell you if you have a union, it's going to be the end of you. And, and in the end, uh, the union was not the reason that we went out of business. Um, I don't know. I, one, one of the other many things our president wants to do is bring unions back. I don't know if unions want to be brought back. The union guys I know gave up organizing new companies decades ago. So, mm-hmm. um, that, that's going to be interesting. Um, you know what? Another thing that's going to be interesting to watch to go political for a minute is, you know, in one way or another, Biden's not going to finish this four-year presidency, in my opinion. Doesn't seem like it. He's already not performing very well. I think Kamala Harris is going to be our president, and that's going to be a whole different ballgame. Mm-hmm. He is extraordinarily liberal, and I think she's got some some ideas that will set your hair on fire that we haven't even heard about yet. So. Right. That'll be that's there a lot of watching. Like I guess those are kind of the high points, John. Sure. Um, well, and, you know, I think this business is a series of decisions. I really believe you make a lot of good decisions and a lot of bad decisions. I I always felt like we just made a decision quickly. You know, we didn't have a corporate office in Chicago or San Francisco or something. We were always here, and we could get together and make a decision quickly and go after it. And um, if the decision was ended up being the wrong one, we would make a course correction. Sure. I think that was a big kind of advantage for us. I always thought, and I still believe, agility and ability to make a decision and then go after it full force is really important. Sure. And I saw a lot of our competitors that, and I was very proud of the fact that we were very decisive and we knew what we wanted to do and we went and did it. So that was that was a good thing. You know, one of the and, things uh, that I think, you know, and especially hearing your story, and it's something that happened to me in the past year or so, is, uh, you know, I've gone through, you know, obviously we never got anywhere near as big as your company did, but I went through all sorts of different growth pains and making bad decisions. And, you know, and they didn't seem like they were bad decisions at the time when you look back and you realize like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But um, using what either... Uh, knowledge and information you had at the time you you just went in a direction and uh you know you talk about the working and working the 100 hours a week and then something that the uh the whole pandemic thing kind of changed for me was i worked and worked and worked and worked and you know i same same deal i'd get up early go to work and uh come home and spend a little time with the family and then flip open my laptop and i'd work till midnight one two three in the morning and every day and, you know, I, I'd watch my friends and neighbors, they'd go and do things on the weekends and, um, camping was one we'd go camping and I'd spend my whole day in the camper on my laptop working instead of out enjoying and having fun. And after a solid decade of doing that and going through some terrible stuff and getting out of the other side of it and, and working and working and working one day, the world just shut down, no fault of my own. No, you know, there's nothing, there's not a single choice I could have made that would have impacted the world just shutting down. Well, almost exactly a year ago. 
And I thought to myself, you know what? What am I doing? Like, I, I like working and I like doing what I'm doing. But I missed out on a lot of stuff that I probably should have enjoyed more in the past 10 years uh, or more. I, I worked a lot before that, too that had absolutely no bearing on any of this. In any one given day, there could be a random sequence of events completely out of your control that takes it all away from you. And uh, I just decided at that point, like, nope, <laughs> just I, I'm going to do as much as I possibly can, but I'm going to try and enjoy life as much as I possibly can. And uh, I, I just, I don't, that, that question of what would you do differently? There's nothing you could have done differently last year unless you had a time machine and got rid of COVID from the beginning or something. Um, I, I've, my whole philosophy has changed on what that work-life balance is, should be or sh is in the past year. And uh, I, I think it's going to stay with me forever. I don't, I don't think it's going to change. It's, that's, that's interesting because, you know, I, my group has evolved in mostly being young entrepreneurs. Um, and, at one point or another, they all talk to me about work-life balance, and they know that they don't have it right. It's kind of like, oh, I still have to go out and do this this one thing or meet this one objective, and then I can kind of pull back a little bit. But and they're they're all working, they're on the treadmill pretty hard. They they do play hard, but they work harder. And um, I don't think they have, they have figured that out yet. And you know, that's not something you can coach them out of because it's just the way they're wired. And, um, I can, I can, and I, I knew you when you were wired that way. And I think you just, you just have to all of a sudden realize, what am I doing? <laughs> right. And it, it has to be a moment of reckoning that comes to you individually. I don't think anybody can coach you and say, yeah, I'll cut it back and I'll only work 45 hours and I'll spend right. more time with my family and I'll do more trips and I'll be sitting around the fire at the campground. I'll, I won't take my laptop with me to camp anymore. Right. It's just something all of a sudden I think, you know, bullshit. I'm a, I don't need to do that anymore. Well, it's it's something that you said earlier when you, you said you guys were growing really fast that I think is one of the problems with most people that uh, lead and own companies is that you are that middle manager that feels like you have to take care of all the things. And a lot of times you do, but there becomes a certain point where you can leave on Friday and come back on Monday and really nothing much is going to change even if you came in Saturday and Sunday and worked. Um, you can get a lot of stuff done, but a lot of times it's meaningless stuff. And if you were forced to get the same amount of stuff done Monday through Friday, you'll find a way to get it done or delegate it if you force yourself to. If you give yourself 200 hours to, to get all this stuff done in a week, you're going to use all 200 hours. If you limit yourself to 50 and say, I got to get this done no matter what in 50, you're going to find a way because you're a smart person. You're, you're, you're good at figuring things out. You just have to put that limitation on you. And I, I see a lot of people don't. That's, that's one of the things I've noticed that, in the past year. That's, that's an interesting point because one thing I always observe, I will say one thing. I was always um, pretty diligent to, to take vacations because I, I thought, uh, I always believed you make memories with your kids and those memories are a really important part of your family history. And it, you shouldn't, you shouldn't shortchange them. I know you're a really big camping guy, and mm -hmm. I know you're making a lot of memories of camp with Pam and, and Piper, which I think is wonderful. Um, when it got to be like a Friday afternoon before a trip, <laughs> I'd have all this paper on my desk, and somehow 
five hours later, it would all be gone. I would just be like on on speed. <laughs> you know, yeah. you could just yeah. make a decision, boom, send this to this guy, send this to this guy, take care of this, take care of this. And all of a sudden, your desk is clear. Good, I can go on vacation now. Yeah. Why didn't I do it that way on Tuesday or Wednesday? I could have done the same thing on Wednesday, but I always, I'm a last minute guy anyway, but you're right. You, it's how you how you spend your time and how efficient you are. It really makes, does make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody needs to be a little more mindful of that. Yeah, it's a tough one. Well, Hoop, I really appreciate you sitting down with me. Maybe we'll do this again sometime in the future. I've always appreciated your story and your advice and and everything. Uh, and I'm really glad to talk to you today. Hope I, gave you some, hope I gave you some food for thought. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'll keep tuning in on your podcast. All right. Well, thank Good you. Good luck with it. Yeah, thank you very much. Good thing. Oh, oh. I hope yeah. you get to monetize. I know you're having fun, but I hope you do get to monetize it someday. Nah. That would be fun too. I pre- maybe you'll be the next rush. Maybe there's there's a spot open now, so maybe I can slide I right understand. in there. <laughs> people are uh, people are auditioning as we speak. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks very much, Hoop. Have yourself a great night. Give your girls a hug for me, and I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Take you care, too. John. Thanks. Bye. Bye.